0: All right. So take your Bibles. Open up to First Peter. We are uh, have been in a study. You can go online and, and download if you want to catch up with it. But in this study, Peter's been using illustrations of living stones, and he's talking about God building this new temple out of these living stones, of which Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the whole foundation is built uh, off of him and built upon him. And so we've been doing that language, and now. Peter shifts and uses a different picture this morning that we're going to see. So we're going to start in 1 Peter. We're just going to look to start with here at verses 9 and 10. And this is one of the more famous passages uh, in the New Testament. It reads like this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. So Peter's trying to encourage this group who are called the exalted exile, and he's trying to give them the greatness of the promises, but not just the promises, the greatness of the position that they have in Christ, of who they are and what it means. And um, he's using this language. Now, this language isn't that familiar to us, but it would be very familiar to those who had grown up in synagogue and grown up in a Jewish background. They would know instantly where Peter's pulling from, and he's pulling from places in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Let me show you uh, where from Exodus 19 where God is talking to Israel after he brought them out of Egypt and now is beginning to bring them into the promised land. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. See the familiarity with where Peter pulled that? He's saying, You are going to be my treasured possession. In your house somewhere, you probably have stuff that's valuable to you, and some stuff's more valuable than other stuff. Often the question is asked, if your house were to catch on fire, what would you grab on the way out? God's saying he would grab us on the way out. And that's what Peter's trying to communicate, is the incredible value that God sees in the relationship with us. He says... If you obey my voice, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. Israel wasn't a big nation. wasn't a powerful nation. wasn't, at that time, a strategic nation. It wasn't much of anything. God says it's not because you're greater than other nations or even that you're more righteous. He says, you're, I picked you because I found you. Isn't that true today? You're here probably because God picked you and found you. More than likely, He chased you then you chased him. And if you're still sitting here, it's probably because he's been very faithful in the chasing of you, right? Because often we flounder in our faithfulness and our chasing of him. And so uh, that's where Peter's talking about. Once we had not received mercy, now we've received mercy. And merciful people tend to be grateful people. And so Peter's wrapping that all up because when you're under persecution and trouble, one of the things that can go out the window is the spirit of gratefulness. Spirit of thankfulness. The other place that um, I just pulled that shows where Peter pulled it from is Deuteronomy 7, 6. He said, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So you can see this is a repeated theme in the Old Testament. So Peter takes this theme and now he applies it to those who are in the church. And in this... Um, and so what he's saying is what's true for Israel is now also true for you, for us, all right? And and in that then, he calls us more than conquerors, right? Paul uses that term in Romans 8, but Peter's saying the same thing. You, you're these conquering people. You, you are these overcomers uh, kind of people. Now, let me ask you this morning. How many of you feel like overcomers, right? Ba-da-da, charge, yeah. Oh yeah hmm got it yeah over over i'm i'm overweight i'm over drawn i'm o- overcoming i um hmm where's that one land and what i want to say about that is that there are two different ways to look at our circumstances and and I've marveled at this over the years uh being a pastor and watching people hit the exact same thing i mean the same exact circumstance, and for one person, it kicks them completely away from God, and for the other person, it kicks them completely towards God. And you're like, wait a minute, that was the same thing. How did that same thing do that effect to those people? And Peter here is working with this group of people that I think, if you read First Peter, there's some danger in that they might tip the wrong way. That's what this whole letter is, an exhortation to stay with it, stay strong. Don't give up what is yours in Christ. And so, um, you know, they could look at their circumstances as exiles and say, man, did we buy a load of cake, right? We we totally misunderstood. We've been duped. You know, we we just got conned royally and we've gotten our butts kicked. And this is not anything close to what I signed up for. So we're out of here. Right? That's one way to look at it. The other way that they could look at it is they had these very precious promises that God was giving them and they were to hang on no matter what their circumstances were. That it wasn't the end of the story, that God hadn't played all his cards out yet. It wasn't the final act of the drama. It was just one part of it. And so they had to make their way through that drama to get to the end where the promises were actually actually given. So how about you this morning? Have the trials taken an edge off of your hope? What you've had to face? You know, maybe nobody else knows what you've gone through, but you know what you've gone through. You suck sucking wind this morning? Just kind of sitting there going, man, I, it's a miracle, I made it to church, I don't know if I'll make it next week. Have the hardships caused us to question? Have they... They caused us to uh, kind of re-examine. Gee, did I, did I misunderstand something? Did I misquote that? And the question comes this morning because these, uh, what Peter uses is some pictures of how they're to see themselves. And the, the question this morning is, how do we actually see ourselves this morning? And uh, I'd like to use a, a, an illustration here this morning about how you see yourself. What do you see up there? An old hag or a beautiful young woman? How many see the old hag? Come on, you raise your hands. This is You don't get graded for it. That's okay. How many see the beautiful young woman? Ooh, look at that. Keep looking. Keep looking. The wives are now saying to their husbands, see, it's over there. The interesting point is you can be looking at the very same thing and see something completely different than the person sitting next to you, right? Where one person in their circumstances just sees everything is going bad, sees everything is broken, sees everything is ugly, the other person can see incredible beauty out of the exact same circumstances. And the question this morning is how do we see life? Do we see it through the cup half full and everything's broken and the falls wrecked everything and stained everything and it's it's not working out the way I want it to and I, I just have to settle for life? Or do we see the cup half full with the mercies and the promises that God has given us in spite of the difficulties that we've had to go through? You know, sometimes, um, I don't know about you, but I'm really good at halfway. Okay? Just Honest truth, right? I'm really good at halfway. Sometimes I even hit three quarters. But I'm not that good at finishing well, right? And you're saying, well, you're the pastor. I'm going, yeah, I'm also human, all right? So deal with it. And uh, by just being honest, that, that a lot of times I get halfway there and then I go, eh, eh, ick, right? Any of you ever do that? You're all looking so saintly right now. Like you have no idea what I'm talking about. But I, you know, it it just got a lot hard. Like, guys, you ever do a home project and halfway through you're going, "What in the world did I sign up for?" Right? By the way, officially, if you're visiting, you don't know nothing. Officially, the trim is totally done at our house. Right now, today, by the grace of God, I'll tell you what. But I'm really good at halfway. I am really good at. Great enthusiasm, yeah, charge. And I get halfway there and go, "Ah." whoa. Now what am I going to do? And Boy, then I have to pray because I realize there's a whole other half to go. That And I already ran out of gas, right? I don't know if if you struggle with that, but I've thought of some stories that reminded me about what Peter's saying here is, hey, don't let go of these promises. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Do you feel like royal priests right now? A holy nation, right? A people for God's own possession. I just hear, okay, where's he? he's going to do something with this. He's going to get us, right? No, I want you to think about those promises because often when we get in trouble or things get hard, that's when we tend to throw those out the window. And here's the point, we quit too soon. We quit too soon. And we've got to learn to endure, and we've got to learn to be steadfast. We've got to learn to have, this whole series is on, fortitude. We've got to have fortitude. Let me give you two stories. One is called, uh, I won't give you the title because you know what it is, but there's a story of a farmer in South Africa who had kind of this dilapidated, sort of rickety, stony land farm with a couple of bent fruit trees on it, and it wasn't very productive, and he didn't make a lot of money of it. And this was during the time when mining became a big thing back in South Africa. And so he decided that he was going to sell his farm and go and seek his fortune in the mining industry. And so he did. He sold his farm, went and sought his fortune. Things did not go well for him. He never did find his fortune. And the end of the story is extremely tragic. He ended up committing suicide over the whole deal. The man who bought his farm was out walking around and there's a little stream that ran through the property. And so he was walking along the stream and he saw this pretty stone in the stream and uh, he picked it up and set it on the mantelpiece. And a fellow buddy came in uh, who happened to be a miner and said, where'd you get that diamond? He says, not a diamond, it's a pretty rock I picked out of the stream. He says, no, I mine for a life, that's a, that's a diamond. And they took it in, sure enough, at that point it was at that time the largest uncut diamond that had been found in South Africa. And it turns out that that property was on top of what became one of the leading diamond mines in all of South Africa. In other words, here's the point. The guy always had it. It was sitting right under him, but he didn't know what he had. And so he gave it away for trinkets, and the end, what he ended up chasing, he ended up killing because the pursuit was so disastrous and all the time, the riches were sitting right underneath them. Isn't that a great analogy of the Christian life? The riches and the treasures are right there, uh, and and we go off chasing other stuff. I found one that one's too esoteric, though, all right? Here's one closer to home. How about the Seahawks? Let's do, let's do that one, all right? Ah, now we're getting real. Okay, so did you read the article this week about John Nordstrom's regret that they sold the Seahawks? Anybody see that article? Just Melissa and... And Jeff and, okay, and Jolene. All right, just a couple of you. Well, here's the story. So they did this interview with John Nordstrom. He's one of the Nordstrom brothers, right? There's John and Lloyd and that whole posse together. And um, they did a a story on reflecting back on uh, when they had sold the Seahawks. And he talked about how they got the Seahawks. So the family, uh, John wasn't into it at all, but the family was kind of a posse. And so if one did it, they all did it kind of thing. And so they were approached to purchase this NFL football team. But to purchase the team, it would require that each of the family members put up $750,000 to purchase the team. The purchase price was $12 million. And John thought that was Looney Tunes, so he didn't want to do it. But he said, well, the rest of the family decided we would, so... Uh, you know, we always do things together as a family. So he and his wife agreed. They joined the rest of the family and purchased this NFL football team, which later became named as the Seattle Seahawks. And he goes on uh, to talk about uh, the challenge of that uh, because then they found out that actually it was going to cost more. It wasn't going to cost $12 million, It was going to cost $16 million, So it was going to be... Uh, a million now per person that they had to throw in. And so he's talking about trying to swallow that lump uh, as well. But then something magic happened. There was this thing called TV revenue that was first negotiated back when they bought the team. And it turns out that with the new television contracts, they would make a sweet $2.2 million every year off the TV contracts. And they came to find out that, and John says embarrassingly so, they basically bought the team for free with the TV contracts. It didn't cost them anything. They made their money back. And so now they're owners of uh, NFL uh, franchise. Those of you who are too young would not remember, but they were kind of the goofballs of the NFL back in that day. Uh, Jack Patera and that whole thing, and they were masters of trick plays and that kind of stuff. But, uh, they asked John, well, why was that embarrassing? He says, well, it just didn't seem right, right? John's a very old school business guy, and so it just didn't seem right that we got the team for nothing and uh, that kind of stuff. But then uh, some things started to happen, and they had some difficulties. And, um, and so uh, what the difficulties were is, any of you remember they had the strikes? Remember the NFL strikes? So he says this. He says, we really, really enjoyed, these are quotes, we really, really enjoyed owning the team until we had the two work stoppages, two player strikes. He said, we got, you've got to remember, he says, we have a great relationship with our salespeople. Any of you go to Nordstrom's and it started out as the shoe place, right, and that whole deal, and they, they go all out with their salespeople and treat them really well. He says, so we, you've got to remember, we've got a great relationship with our salespeople and our people who work our stores. And he says, I don't want to say it's a love affair, but we just think they're fantastic. And <clears throat> he says, well, we just love their football team the same way. And the management, he said, it was just a one. But then all of a sudden, you're fighting with guys you think are really great. And it was really unpleasant. And then he said it got worse because the owners uh, got castigated by the public. And the bumper sticker showed up, right? And the bumper sticker was cheap Nordstrom owners. Remember those back in there? Everybody had them plastered on. So the very town they had invested in, the very town they were trying to carry the flag for, suddenly was mad at them, and there were bumper stickers all over all the cars in Seattle. So no matter where they drove, they saw about how cheap the Nordstrom's family were. And there's a bunch of Nordstrom's, so they saw a bunch of bumper stickers, right? And this kind of became a, a bitter pill for them. Plus, on top of that, John goes on in the article to admit, even back then they knew they would have to tear the kingdom down and build a new stadium. And he said, you know what? After going through this public thing and we realized what kind of battle that would be, he said, we didn't have the stomach for it. And so uh, they ended up uh, selling the team for $80 million, which is a pretty good you know, return on your investment, right? To Mr. Infamous Ken Baring who promised the Nordstroms he'd keep the Seahawks in Seattle and then almost got them to California except for a, a legal order. Remember, the trucks were packed and already moving out of town when they had to turn around and come back. And he's he's reflecting on this and talking about um, the impact that had. He says, you know, as he looked back, he said, we probably shouldn't have sold the team. Those same Seahawks right now are estimated to be at $1.87 billion in terms of value. Not million, billion. Now, $80 million looks pretty good until you measure it against $1.87 billion. Okay, What happened? What happened is it got rough. What happened is it got difficult. What happened was they lost vision to see the thing all the way through, and they cashed out too quickly. Yeah, they made a return. They didn't make near the return they could have made. And I'm not faulting the Nordstroms because they're tremendous people and they're they're great business people in our area. But this is talking about people like us who should have hung in there. And he goes on to say this. He says, we probably shouldn't have sold the team. That was probably a mistake. You think? Okay. He says, but um, he said, we just... We'd gone through the strikes. We didn't want to go through the public for the stadium, and he said, and trying to get a whole new stadium like Paul Allen did. He said, all in all, it turned out well. How many you Christian? How many people you know that are Christian that go halfway there, that cash out halfway through, and say, well, you know, I'm going to cash out for the eighty million. Yeah, God promises one point eight seven billion, but that just is too hard to get there. I'm going to stop now. I'm going to quit. I'm going to end. And Peter's whole uh, point at this point is to hang in there. Often uh, we will uh, sell out because there seems to be a better promise. Ravi Zacharias, uh, a really good uh, speaker for the Lord, says, Think of how much emotion and effort we as humans invest to experience a sensation that will not last. We trade the promises of God in for experiences that are only temporary and they don't last. And so we trade what's eternal for what is temporary. God tries to tell us, he tries to say, you are more than conquerors. You are beloved. Did you see the verse from Zephaniah up there this morning? My delight will be in you. Most of us believe that God loves us. And the reason we believe God loves us is because He has to. He's God. God is love. He has to. But if I said to you this morning, do you think God likes you? I mean, likes you as a person, would like hanging out with you. If God walked in, out of the other people in the room, He'd pick you to hang out with. We'd go, no. Nope, 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 nope. We don't really believe that He would delight in us. And so... We have a hard time believing God's view versus our view because we believe our view is more right than God's view. That should tell tell you something right there. Let me show you an illustration. Um, You know this story. Here's God's take. Remember Gideon? The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. Uh, The Midianites have again invaded the land. They're stripping the land like locusts. They've got Israel absolute in submission rear-guarding and retreat, hiding in caves and rocks. And Gideon has grabbed some green wheat. It's not even ripe. He's run up on a hill. He's hiding in a wine press, and he's trying to thresh out some wheat before uh, the Midianites can even steal that. And Jesus comes to him as the angel of the Lord and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. (laughs) Who? What? What's Gideon's take? Gideon's take is this. Say what? Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. In other words, out of the 12 tribes, you got the wrong tribe. Go to Judah. they got strong people over there. We're Manasseh. We're nothing. We're the country bumpkin neighbors up north, and we we got nothing going. You got the wrong tribe. And and God, you've got the wrong clan. Okay? You got the wrong clan. There's much more noble clans in Manasseh than than our clan. And God, you've got the wrong family. Our family isn't much. And out of that family, Lord, you got the wrong person. I'm the absolute worst possible person you could pick. I am the weakest in my father's house. I'm the least in my father's house. And he's trying to throw out a very convincing argument that his take about who he is is greater than God's take of who he is. Remember that illustration earlier? The old hag and the beautiful young woman? All Gideon could see was disaster and trouble and wreck and ruin. And he had no faith at all that God could really do anything. God saw a mighty warrior. God saw a conqueror. God saw someone who could deliver his nation. And the question is, which viewpoint is going to win out? And by the way, since we can find fault with Gideon, let me ask the question this morning. How many times have you told God you couldn't do what He's asked you to do? Oh, no, 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 Lord. Not me. Surely you must have meant my neighbor. Or Pastor Steve, he's godly, go pick on him. right? How many times have you told God you couldn't do what he's asked you to do? So I want to give you three things off of that that I think are really uh, important uh, this morning for our thinking. Number one, you act like who you really think you are. When push comes to shove, when pressure's on, not when it's normal and we're at a barbecue together and I want to like you and you want me to like me and right, we just have all this going together. That's just social. But when the pressure's on, you act like who you really think you are. And what that boils down to is we either act like we are cursed or we are blessed. If you take the Bible and bring it, it breaks into two categories, those who are blessed and those who are cursed, Right? If I am cursed, I'm going to act like I'm cursed. I'm going to act like the promises don't pertain to me. God doesn't take notice of me. My circumstances are absolutely unique. He hasn't looked to help me out, and therefore everything's going to go wrong, and it always go wrong, so I'm never going to get my hope up, because that's the way it goes, and that's who I am, and that's set in stone, and that opinion is more important than what God thinks of me. If I act blessed... If I know that Jesus has removed the curse, then I start to say, you know what? I'm more than my I'm more than my track record. I'm more than what other people think of me. I'm more than even what I think of myself. Because God if wants to, if God wants to use me, then he can use anything. Right? He can use a donkey with Balaam, he can use me. And therefore, I'm blessed. That even though all of life hasn't gone the way I want, and even though everything hasn't happened the way I thought, I am blessed because the Lord found me. And therefore, when life rolls out, it's going to be an incredible thing. And I'm able to do the things the Lord said because He thinks this of me, not because I think this of me. Right? And it takes faith to engage in either perspective. Right? You've got to have a lot of faith to think that your opinion is better than God's opinion. We we think atheists are arrogant. What about the believer who says, God, you got it wrong? No, Lord. You ever put those two together? That takes a lot of faith. It also takes a lot of faith to believe the Lord. It takes a lot of faith to step with Him. It takes a lot of faith to stay in there and believe the promises, even when everything around you looks like it's not true. And we have to remember that God hasn't played all His cards out. That everything isn't rolled out yet. He hasn't revealed everything that he's going to do. And therefore, he asks us to stay with it, to hang in there, to believe his report. Let's look at what Peter said again. Now, with that in mind, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. By the way, that's you today. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look at those words, chosen. Chosen, I chose you. How many of you can look at your life and realize God chose you? Right? When it all comes and done, I mean... Pretty much, is anybody going to stand in heaven and say, yes, I chose you, Jesus, therefore I'm in? Most of us, Jesus chased us. Right? And then he found us. And then he keeps chasing us because he's really faithful at choosing. We're pretty bad in our faithfulness at staying with the track record. Right? So, chosen. That's really significant. Royal. A royal priesthood. Not just a priesthood, a royal, kingly, stately priesthood full of stature priesthood, one that only does the best sacrifices for a holy God. And therefore, we're a holy nation because we serve a holy God. And then it says, a people for his own possession. I want to use the word there, purchased. Purchased. Okay, God purchased us. That means he intentionally went out and bought us. He saw value in us when other people or even ourselves didn't see value and he purchased us, you ever hear these stories of someone who goes through a secondhand store, right? And they find some rock or jewel or some fabulous old antique and they buy it for 50 cents because they purchased it, right? And they take it home. They say, this is my prized possession. Right? God says, we are, you are this morning, his prized possession. Regardless of what you've been going through. Be it good or be it bad. You are his prized possession. And you can feel the resistance in the room on that. You're ticking me off, Steve. I'm struggling with that. I'm having a hard time. Quit pushing that button. Well, Peter pushed the button. I'm pushing the button. Paul echoes the same theme, by the way. Let me just read to you Ephesians 2 and see if you catch the same kind of themes that run through Ephesians 2 that are running here through 1 Peter. Paul says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's us, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Remember where you were. Remember where you started. For he, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. "...by abolishing the law of the commandment expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so then you are no longer strangers and aliens." but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Where have we heard that language before? Right, Same language Peter's using. Built on Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, talking about a temple being built here, The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together in a dwelling place, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the whole picture is of this incredible, living, translucent temple that is built by living stones that God's light shines through, and it's built on the foundation and the cornerstone of Jesus Christ Himself. And therefore it says, You are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for God's own possession the problem is not that we believe Jesus the problem is we don't believe him enough the problem is not most of the time that we believe in God the problem is most of the time our belief in God is too small the what Peter's trying to say here is that the ultimate structure of the universe isn't what man builds isn't what's out in the solar systems or the galaxies of the universe right now. It's going to be a temple that God's going to build that's like nothing else that's ever been seen. And it's worth hanging on to at all costs for the promises that God has promised with that. And then Peter goes on to say this, And you once had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. All right? Any of us receive mercy From the Lord? I always say, you know, you should have got your butt kicked and he didn't. Right? Can you say that in church? Sure. That's the worst thing we ever say in church. We're doing good. All right. One of the signs of receiving mercy is gratefulness. Right? And if you think about it, that's one of the most amazing characteristics of Peter and Paul. Right, they are not temperaments that you necessarily expect gratefulness out of. Right, they are hard-driving, type A leader, knock it out uh, kind of things. You don't you expect them to demand honor. You don't expect them to be grateful. And yet, two of the most grateful people in all of Scripture are Paul and Peter because they had received mercy and they knew what that looked like. What's the purpose of all that? The purpose of all that is this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, we freak out over witnessing, right? And, and I have to go to seminary to witness and I need to have some course I go through or that kind of stuff. And, and even by that, if God walked somebody into my yard and actually said, hey, could you tell me about Jesus? I still probably freak out. I'm not sure I can do it. We've got that picture all wrong. This is proclaiming how good our dad is. Remember when you were a kid? My dad's bigger than your dad, right? Why? Because we're proud of our dad. And then look at what my dad does for me. My dad takes us out for ice cream. Oh, yeah. Well, my dad takes us out for slippers. Oh, yeah. Well, my dad takes... Right? And you get in that whole thing. What are we talking about? How good our dads are to us. All right? Now, if we haven't had good dads, all right, that's one thing. But the scripture says that when Jesus becomes our... When God becomes our father... He becomes a good dad. I love that song we sing, Your Good, Good Father. Because it's something I've been trying to teach us as a church is that God is a good dad. He is a great dad. He's not like the earthly dads we've had. Even if you've had a good one, he's better than that. He is a faithful, promise-keeping dad. He doesn't leave you sitting out on the curb by yourself hanging. And one of the things that all of this is designed to do is that we would proclaim the excellencies. How cool is dad that we'd proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Has God been good to you? How? That's not hard to tell somebody. When I tell people I should have been dead seven times before I knew the Lord and at least four times after, I'm not making up metaphors, okay? Those are not analogies. That's an actual gospel truth. I was an idiot, okay? It is a miracle that I'm standing in front of you on stage. It's even more of a miracle that I'm 60 and still function, okay? I should have been a quadriplegic several times over. So the fact that I can be here and laugh and hoot and holler Wow, this is fantastic. God has been incredibly kind to me. Has he been good to you? Right? Really, if we talked about, hey, how good has dad been? And you start thinking about that, it really kicks that stuff up. Do you remember those stories? Can you go back and think of two or three stories right now? How good has God been to you? All of a sudden, you start getting really grateful, right? Oh, yeah, I remember the good stuff. I remember um, Jan my uh, my mentor Jan Hedingham taught me do not forget in the darkness what you learned in the light do not forget in the darkness what you learned in the light when it comes to thinking of God do you only remember the things that went wrong or do you remember the good things he's done for you look at look at Peter because I think there's something um, you know Peter could have could have wallowed on what went wrong right he could have sat forever on how he blew it in other words if I said this morning hey how have you blown it And I bet you if we turned to each other and started telling stories and we actually didn't have all our walls up and told the real stories, it would be blushing with shame this morning because we could lay out scandalous tales of how pathetic we've been in our faithfulness to God. And that's what we sit with. Yep, I've blown it, I've blown it, I've blown it. But you know, Peter didn't do that. Peter was drawn back. Look at um, Peter's source of reference. What did Peter go back to? Where did he get all this light imagery from? Where did he get these living stone things and light shooting out and all this kind of stuff? Well, there was an incident. Remember, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And then it says, in front of him he stood and he was transfigured before him and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking and Peter was an idiot didn't know what to say. And, oh, hey, let's build some tents. And, yeah oh, you want us to cook something? Uh, you know, and he didn't know what to say. But later in his life, what does Peter go back to? Do you think he ever lost that image when he's telling people about the promises of the God? Let me tell you about a time when I saw what it's going to look like. Let me tell you what the end game is. Yeah, this, this stinks. I can't fix that for you. I wish I could. But let me tell you what the end is. Let me tell you what it's going to look like. And he always went back to that place where Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. And that light even overcame and washed out the place where he blew it in his sin. And so Peter talked that way. All right. I'm going to ask the communion servers and the worship team to come forward at this point. And Peter says, "Therefore, be full of joy. Be grateful. Why? Because once you had not received mercy, now you had received. Now you have received mercy. People who receive mercy are grateful people. You know, you can tell this in the life of a church. If a body gets tight, if a body starts being ungrateful, everything goes tight in it. Everything starts getting real legalistic. Everything starts getting uh, knotted up. But if gratefulness can break through." it really changes how people respond. And there's two things that Peter warns us about at the end of this uh, phrase here. There's two things I want to look at right before we go into communion. Two strong exhortations. Here's exhortation number one. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, in other words, you're only here for a short period of time, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Before we go to communion, communion always says we should examine ourselves, right, to be in right standing with God. And if we've blown it this week, we should stop for a second, tell the Lord we've blown it and get right in our heart before we have communion. And too often we run that by and say, well, that was for old people in the New Testament and uh, we don't do that anymore. But, you know, I think it's a wise thing. Anybody wage war this week with the passions of their flesh? Your tongue, your thoughts, your actions, right? And you just caved in or let it fly, whichever direction that took. It says, Peter says, those things wage war against our souls. What does it do? It steals the promises. It steals the hope. It steals the fortitude that we're supposed to have towards the kingdom. And I want to just give us a minute to just stop as the trays come by, just keep letting them come by. It's okay if you open your eyes, but would you just stop for a minute? How have you waged war this week? Or maybe a better way to ask it, what has waged war with you this week? What has tried to steal you from the promises that Peter's talking about? Just close your eyes for a minute. Do this before the Lord. To do more of that today as you go further. The second exhortation is to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, that means do the right thing. And it means you do the right thing even if you don't get rewarded for it, even if nobody else notices. Right? It said that the test of a character of a person is what happens when nobody else is looking. How do you operate when nobody else is looking? Do you do the right thing? Do you operate in an honorable way? Do you operate in an honorable way in business? Do you operate in an honorable way at home? Do you operate in an honorable way with your children? Do you operate in an honorable way in your neighborhood? Or would your neighbors say, Wow, they go to church? Really? Operate in an honorable way. Why? So that when they do accuse you of evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, when we act honorably, we allow God to be glorified, and that'll all come out when the judgments roll up. So Peter's saying, watch out for the stuff that wages war against your soul, the passions of your flesh. Number two, act in an honorable way. Right? Act in an honorable way. How do we stay with the promises? Well, I was reading some of the. Uh, what Jesus had said in John 14, which is the high priestly prayer, he said something that caught my mind that I think relates to this morning. He says this: He said, "Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, or many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I would have told you, and that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, and that that where I am, you may be also." Jesus said, hey, I'm going to take off. I'm going to leave. And in the process of doing that, he left a word picture, an analogy, an object lesson. said, I want you to focus on this because this will allow you to stay focused on me and stay focused on my promises because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the place I'm going to prepare for you is the kind of stuff we've been talking about this morning. Massively cool. And it's worth hanging on to. And he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. And so when we take communion, it is a reminder he's coming back. Hang in there. All the cards aren't played yet. Stay faithful to what he's asked you to do, to what he's asked you to be. And let him clear the decks. Don't try to do it yourself. And you're going, yes, it's hard. And Jesus said, yes, I know it's hard. But you haven't come to the point of shedding your blood yet. I have. Right? So follow my example. Follow my lead. He said, eat this in memory of me. And he took the cup. The cup is a symbol of his blood. Is it not extended mercy that our sins are washed away? Think about that. Is that not incredible grace? But the other thing he said is, I will not come back and drink this again until I return. So Jesus hasn't drank a cup for over 2,000 years. Think about that. You think it's been a long haul for you? Think how long that's been for him. And when he comes back, it's going to be what? A celebration. He's going to celebrate because all these promises roll out. And he says, drink this in memory of me. Father, as we've gone through this, my hope and prayer is that you will re-anchor for those who find themselves drifting, that you will give courage to those who find themselves faced with fear, that you will um, exhort those and encourage them that they can make it who are thinking of quitting halfway through. And Lord, that you would embolden us as a body to talk, about how good our dad is. Lord, we we forget that side of it. We turn it into a theology instead of a relationship. Help us to find some place this week where we can talk to someone about how good our dad is. And we ask this in your name. Amen.